0: Hello, my name is Anthony Nagel with Lowercase Capital and today we'll be discussing the recent performance of the equity value directional strategy that we've been managing since the beginning of Quarter four 2019. And if you're following us on social media, you've probably already seen the results posted, uh, but what I want to do here is talk about some of the details as well as get into what it's been like to to manage this strategy. Uh, But before I do that, first a disclaimer. This material is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with a financial professional before making any financial or investment decisions. And this material should not be construed as investment advice. So like I said, we're going to get into the performance history of the equity value directional strategy, uh, which I, you know, are very happy with, I think. Um, But before I tell you exactly what that is, I, I want to make sure that we're presenting the full picture And whenever we're talking about performance history, it's important that we include all the material facts that really come along with that performance. And so we'll talk about fees, how the fees are calculated um, that would be charged for someone that would actually bring an account uh, to lowercase capital to be managed um, in accordance with the strategy. And so this performance history is going to be reflecting the fees both for management and for brokerage fees uh, for such an account. And it's also going to reflect the fact that uh, we're working off the expectation that dividends generated by this strategy, even though it's a value strategy, um, what dividends do exist uh, would be reinvested back into the account. And we'll also set the table in terms of market conditions. Uh, we'll talk about really where you know, what was the market doing, even though, again, just like I mentioned earlier, uh, it's a pretty unique market period. Um, we'll still just touch on it specifically uh, to make sure that we're all on the same page there. Uh, and then we'll also talk about uh, which benchmarks we're using for comparison, and then highlight any pertinent differences uh, between the strategy and the benchmark, and and particularly in terms of volatility targets and, and you know, management goals for uh, the benchmark and for the strategy. And then, with all that discussed, we'll finally get into the actual performance itself. Um, but we won't just stop there. Um, as we talk about the performance, uh, I'd also want to share the process behind the scenes of, about what it was like to manage a strategy, uh, and so we'll go through some of the major transitions that were made uh, at a high level, uh, while not getting into discussions on specific securities. Um, that's not something I'm able to do here, uh, but again, we'll just talk about things at maybe a, a sector level. So, how do we calculate performance? What are we What are we doing to calculate the performance? Well. We're looking at a time-weighted uh, account, which means, essentially, if you took uh, starting $100,000, let's take $100,000 as an example case, put it into an account, and you ask me to manage it in accordance with this strategy, that's what you're going to see represented in terms of the graph. That's what, time, that's what a time-weighted uh, graph is going to show you. So it's not accounting for any d- deposits or withdrawals that happen at certain points in time which in reality could substantially change the result an individual investor would see uh, because maybe just by chance you happen to deposit um, an additional 50% of the account value uh, just at the bottom of a stock market crash. Well, your return is going to look much better uh, than someone who made no such deposit the whole time. Uh, We'll be upfront about the fees. So in this case, uh, this account would come with a 1% per year uh, management fee that's billed quarterly. And so what we've done is we've actually uh, shown that reflected in the performance as well as the, the brokerage fee of, of 0.2% per year. All of that's built into the performance history that we're going to talk about here. And then lastly, uh, regarding the performance calculation, uh, we're assuming in this case that dividends are being reinvested. So regarding market conditions, uh, we'll touch on the overall performance of the S&P. Uh, again, I, I think we all know that there was a stock market crash that happened back at the end of February, going through well into March. Uh, the stock market was, you know, at least S&P was at a, a level of about 3,400 before, before it crashed, and it was a pretty substantial decline. And I won't say everything went down together, but... Um, you know, there's a common phrase, right? When there's a stock market crash, all correlations go to one. And for the most part, that was true. You saw uh, declines in prices for, for quite a lot of things. So it was a pretty substantial, uh, pretty substantial crash. And so when we're talking about a value strategy in particular, benchmark in this case is the SPYV, and that's your S&P 500 value ETF. And that's just trying to track the performance of the, the value, S&P value index that benchmark, when the stock market crash happened, it also dropped substantially. It dropped 37% from its February high and ended up recovering only 20% by the end of the quarter. So in other words, um, that SPYV benchmark is down 17% from the, from the February high uh, and it's down 8% across the nine-month time frame that we're talking about. So from the beginning of quarter four, 2019, to the end of quarter two, 2020, the benchmark is down 8%. So like I said, the benchmark is the SPYV, that's that S&P value index, and that's a a passive strategy that's really just trying to uh, match the performance of the S&P value index. So keep in mind here that the strategy we're talking about is an active strategy. So I'm employing active management techniques to try and actually uh, outperform an index. And that's going to be done through a combination of the equity selection process, as well as through the intentional management of net positioning. So for those of you not familiar, net positioning is essentially saying how much appreciation or depreciation should I expect to see when the overall market appreciates or depreciates by a certain amount. So for example, at a net positioning of of 50%, if the stock market goes up 10%, uh, I would expect an account to go up about 5% in that situation, whereas with net positioning of 100%, you would expect to see the full 10% appreciation. So, so okay, so that's net positioning. Also want to touch on the volatility of both the, the benchmark and the strategy. So the benchmark SPYV has a, um, a beta of about 1.03. And to compare that beta to the strategy, the strategy beta is actively managed during periods of unfavorable market conditions to be about 0.25, so about one quarter of what the benchmark is, maybe down to a minimum of 0.2. And then on on the favorable side, when the market looks to be favorable, we're targeting a a beta of about one, so roughly equal to the benchmark, but sometimes it can actually become as high as 1.2, and that's accomplished through the use of 10% or less of the assets being allocated to either leveraged, inverse, uh, or also inverse leveraged ETFs. So, in other words, what we're doing is we're aiming to make the strategy um, have moves that are of the same magnitude or possibly larger than the benchmark in periods of time when we believe the market conditions are favorable. And we're looking to have uh, movements in the strategy of. I mean, again, ideally one-fifth the size of market moves in periods that are unfavorable. Uh, and so so for a lot of reasons, an active strategy is very different from a passive strategy. But the common thread in both of these is that they're both uh, approaching the, the stock market from the from the lens of value. So they're both taking a, a value approach to it. And so the reason why we're using this uh, index, value index, as a benchmark is in order to highlight the difference that's provided by an active management style versus what you would consider to be a reference for that style of investment. Um, But it's just important to make sure that it's clear the differences um, so that when we're making these comparisons, um, it's clear between what things we're comparing. So now I think we've adequately set the table to get into the the performance details. So so what actually happened here with the strategy? Uh, Strategy was officially launched at the beginning of October 2019, and quarter four 2019 was more or less uneventful. So for the most part, things just went up. I mean, not not at a, a crazy rate, but they just appreciated at a steady rate. And so as a result, the um, equity value directional strategy also appreciated. And at least over the, the period of time of quarter four, it outpaced the gains made by the market. And, and so why was that happening? Uh, at the time, we were very strongly allocated into the energy, energy sector. Uh, and so that we benefited greatly from the appreciation of oil prices, which went up about $10 or, or roughly 20% uh, over the duration of that quarter. And so really starting off, um, we ended up in a good allocation, and that resulted in, in really strong performance outperforming the market. Now, I want to point out that this, this strategy doesn't have a mechanism um, in it, where it would prefer stocks in a certain sector over others at different times. the There's, there's three layers to the selection process. There's a, a quantitative scoring, where it's just looking purely at numbers, and it's providing scoring for different categories, such as value, um, maybe the balance sheets, things like that. And it's just giving these objective numbers, and it doesn't know uh, in which sector are these companies that it's analyzing. Uh, and then at the second step, there's actually a quantitative filtering process where you're going to take companies which pass a first level scoring and actually run them through uh, quantitative filtering to cut down that, that large list of companies to maybe I'll call it a select list that you can provide uh, get into some more detail on. Uh, and then the third step in that process is a qualitative filtering process. So in other words, it's a non-numerical process where... Well, you're going to look directly at the companies and look at um, their suitability for the current market conditions. And, and so that is where then maybe you could say, if for some reason, um, I, as the manager of the strategy, think that it's a good time to be in energy. Maybe I would intentionally allocate myself more into energy. Uh, but I can tell you that that's not actually what happened in quarter four. What happened was uh, actually quite a lot of energy companies came up. And I tried to actually limit the allocation from being too heavily into energy um, because I didn't want to be um, as far heavily allocated into that sector as the, maybe the quantitative part of the process was trying to lead me to be. Uh, so in any case, uh, that's how we started off. And that's what led to the relative outperformance, at least in the beginning. Uh, but then as we got into quarter one of 2020, the same energy allocation started to um, actually weigh down the strategy a little bit. And if you look at the time-weighted return, you can see that starting in January, even before the market was declining, uh, the strategy started to suffer from a bit of a decline. Um, And again, if you go back and take a look at the oil prices, it's not a surprise. Uh, Being in energy when the oil prices are declining uh, is not a great thing. Um, And so over the course of of January and into February, some of those oil companies started to roll off um, as the strategy was repositioned um, in that time, Uh, but we still saw a a pretty decent uh, drawdown just because of that allocation. But really one of the reasons why this um, negative effect of energy in the beginning of 2020 didn't cause more of a negative effect on the strategy is because the strategy was repositioned to reduce the overall net position based upon our risk management process that we pair with the equity value directional strategy. And it was just telling us that, again, big picture market condition data was suggesting it's not going to be a favorable period, uh, at least in the, the coming months. And so as a result, we scaled down our net positioning from a level uh, of, of being nearly fully allocated to something that was really quite defensive. Uh, and it turned out to be uh, a very timely uh, decision. Because as we all know, end of February, uh, the market de- market decline started. And so it's not to say that called the crash, right? The system didn't call the crash. All the system saw was this period of time coming up um, doesn't look to be favorable uh, based upon the way that the system was put together and, and based upon the historical data on which the system was, was benchmarked. But in any case, it ended up making the right decision. And, and it was very fortunate because as a result, um, this strategy only saw a 9% drop from the February 20th level to the low for the strategy. And so that's pretty good, I think, compared to the decline observed by both the S&P as a whole, as well as the S&P value, uh, component. And then to complete the narrative on this, on this nine month time frame here, um, after the crash occurred, in general, there was a market recovery. It was a pretty, pretty substantial market recovery. And as a result, the strategy also saw a recovery. Um, but as I mentioned previously with the, the defensive positioning that we had at that point and maintained at least up and through to the end of this performance period at the end of quarter two 2020, uh, what that means is the strategy couldn't quite keep up with the uh, recovery seen by the, the greater market. Um, because, again, we were only allocated maybe somewhere in the vicinity of, of 25% net long a, at the time. So, um, so yeah, we weren't able to completely keep up. We lost some ground there. And in terms of, again, sectors where this strategy was allocated, uh, we really saw in this, in this period of time uh, a good number of companies in the, in the industrial area that were coming through the selection process. And then as we got into June, we really also started to see more and more real estate investment trusts uh, that were gaining a place in the strategy. So at the end of the day, where did this leave us uh, with respect to both the overall market and with respect to our benchmark? So the strategy itself uh, in this nine-month time period uh, got a time-weighted return of 11.58% while the SPYV... The S&P value ETF there, that ended up with a decline of 7.1%, and the S&P 500 as a whole showed a 6.2% increase, again, across the same period. So the strategy, net of fees, it was able to beat the benchmark on a relative basis by just over 18.5%, and it beat the S&P 500 by a little over 5%. So how do I feel about this performance? I think it's fair to say I feel pretty good about it. I mean, there's certainly areas where the strategy could have done better, but I really think that the strategy delivered on what it's trying to do, which is to participate in the general market appreciation when it's allocated for that, and in a defensive allocation to still appreciate as, as much as possible when the market's going up, while substantially limiting the downside. And, and that's really what the market history had shown over the past nine months for this strategy. Now, it doesn't mean it's gonna do that every time, it just means that it happened to, to work out that way this time. Um, but that's the data that I have, and, and so yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased with it. And in terms of what did it feel like to manage a strategy like this? Uh, well, I can tell you for sure, um, it really felt at times like I was messing it up royally, right? Uh, I, I think it's really natural for anyone who's um, investing to feel that way. Uh, and it's very healthy, I think, to feel that way. Uh, but I don't think the period in time where I thought I was messing it up is the same as everybody else, or at least um, most people, right? So for me, where did I think I was messing it up? Uh, is January. January and the beginning part of February. Because that's where the market was still going up and i'm still here allocated into the energy sector and i'm seeing everything decline right and so i'm looking at the, the 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 results coming out of the quantitative system and it's still having me be allocated into into energy if i believe that this system is going to provide a positive return i can exercise some judgment but really the i can't completely deviate from the system or else it's not a systematic process anymore, is it? It's just me picking stocks. And there is a discretion here. And in this case, I had to make the willful decision that my discretion is going to align with the system and maybe I'll curtail a little bit um, how heavily allocated into energy I am. um, But I have to stick with that, uh, at least until I think that there's a flaw in the system that requires updating. So, so that's where I thought I was really just messing it up, right? I'm looking at what I'm doing here in January, in early February, and I'm just getting wrecked compared to the market. I'm giving back, uh, well, really, I ended up giving back all the relative gains I had made um, since the beginning of October. Um, but then at the same time, keep in mind, we also had the allocation from uh, a favorable positioning um, to one that's very defensive, and that was a very timely thing to do. And so as the market started to crash, Uh, quickly I felt a lot better. I wasn't happy that other people lost money, but I was happy that I was able to manage that market event pretty well. And across this nine months, there was another, um, call it an event, I don't know, there's a detail about managing the account that really stuck with me. There was one company in particular that kept popping up um, as a really strong value opportunity, and so we'd end up uh, putting it into the strategy and it would just do awful, awful, down by tens of percents, and so on. One hand, you're thinking, all right, it's offering a better value numerically; it's still looking, um, still looking good, and so I sh- so really should stick with it, right, because it's surely going to recover. Uh, but on the other hand, if it's losing, what's actually going to make it turn around? And so uh, maybe a point of improvement for me is at a certain point with taking those losses, I ended up getting away from that company, I ended up saying, you know what, um, this company doesn't make any sense given the market climate, and I eliminated it. And, and honestly, looking at the market conditions and looking at the nature of this specific company, it probably should have just never been there in the first place. So that is an example where I probably should have trusted more my discretion in in deciding that even though numerically the company looks fantastic, it's just really not suitable for the current market. And so really the error can happen in both directions, either where you deviate too far from the model and you can suffer losses because now you're not um, really managing an account in line with the model that you've built. Uh, Whereas on the other hand, if you don't make those decisions, those decisive decisions where it's really appropriate, you're still going to end up losing money. So... I guess the moral of the story is, uh, for me, managing a systematic account, managing a systematic strategy, that doesn't mean that you can kick your feet up and relax. It still means that the decisions are on you as the account manager, and, and you really have to be true to yourself about why you're making decisions, either to to go with what's recommended from the what you've built, or to make a clear decision to deviate. So I hope I didn't just kind of... Uh, ramble on for a minute or two incomprehensibly, I uh, just wanted to share, um, get away from the numbers a bit and share really what is it like, what does it feel like to manage an account like that, and, and uh, what are the pitfalls, at least, that I, that I experienced over this period of time. So what are the conclusions from this? So I think that, you know, in terms of the strategy, it was able to make strong gains in periods where it was expected to be favorable, and it was able to mitigate losses substantially uh, compared to the benchmark. And so really, those two components alone uh, contributed to much of the relative success versus the benchmark. And of course, what I'd love to see is maybe improved performance across the period where we had this elevated volatility following the crash, but yet where the market was still recovering. Um, and so it's easy for me to maybe again say, well, the story is not fully over. Um, we expect, uh, you know, another market crash to occur something like that, but you know that's sounds like making an excuse right the the quarter ended at the end of june and the fact is in that period of time the the model didn't perform as well as the market and so that's a point of improvement overall i am satisfied with the performance over the past nine months and you know i look forward to finding ways to improve the performance over these periods of, of volatility where we're in a defensive allocation, but maybe we don't want to be so defensive as to um, to give up as much ground as we did, um, you know, as you can see in the in the chart there. So I've been trying to put this um, podcast episode together for about a week now. And even though it took me longer than I expected it to take to put this together, I really enjoyed making this specific episode uh, because it allowed me to get into the numbers. It allowed me to discuss hard data with you. Um, rather than talking you know, vague terms, ambiguities, right? I mean, I can't talk about specific companies here, but I can tell you exactly how well the, 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 the strategy did. I can tell you exactly how well the benchmark did. And then you can judge for yourself, is that really good or not, right? But, but you have hard data to go on. And that's why I enjoyed making this. And it kind of speaks to a bit why I wanted to even make the company, uh, why I wanted to found lowercase capital in the first place. I did it because I thought I had a service that offers value to potential clients that are suitable for an active in, uh, investing style, an active management style. And certainly there's people out there that don't that aren't suitable for an active investing, an active management approach, but for those that are, I really believed at the time that that what we had built in terms of our the models of risk management and the models for for value and income um, offered something uh, meaningful to, to those clients. And so ultimately, it's my goal to be as, as transparent as possible about the performance of these models now that we're running them forward instead of running them backward, right? Anyone can produce a bunch of back data or uh, testing that can show process should work great. Life's great going in, in reverse, right? Hindsight's 2020. Well, I want to give you the forward-looking data. I want to tell you how it's, how it's doing in reality, real-time weighted returns with real money and real accounts. That way you can judge for yourself if this is something that's suitable for you. So yeah, ultimately it's my goal to be as transparent as possible about our investment performance and about our process so that anyone considering investing with lowercase capital can make an informed decision. So Lowercase Capital, we're an investment advisor registered in the state of Texas, and any residents or businesses that would like more information on our company or strategies, encouraged to go to our website, which is www.lowercasecapital.biz. And there you can find our firm brochure, our policies, as well as other information. Uh, And you can also reach out via email by sending a message to info at lowercasecapital.biz. And so if you enjoyed this content, please consider writing a review in whichever podcasting app you use. Or giving us a like on youtube really want to try and put out not only advertising material clearly this is an advertisement for for lowercase capital but i also want this to be educational um, anyone out there looking to manage your own strategy manage your own personal account manage your online no commission trades um, brokerage account you know or, or your you know whatever type of account right if you have the interest and the time to manage your own account I would like to provide educational material that you can consider when developing your own approach, right? Because ultimately it's your approach, it's your account, it's your money, but perhaps some of the experiences, some of the failures that I can share with you um, can be valuable. So anyways, if you like the material, uh, please help us out on the social medias um, and giving us a like there on YouTube. Uh, And that's really all I have today. However, next episode, we're going to do this one more time because we not only were running our equity value directional strategy from the start of October, but we were also doing our equity income directional strategy. So we'll see another episode, same type of format, but this time looking at income in about a week or two. That's going to do it for us today. Have a good one, everybody.